electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the slide in stocks, why another well-known strategist now says a correction is likely coming. This as we wait for that Apple event at the top of the next hour. That stock, by the way, underperforming the other fangs. We're going to debate all of it with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today are Stephanie Link. Tiffany McGee is the CEO and CIO at Pivotal Advisors. John Najarian, Josh Brown with us as well. Good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall. Take stocks. The biggest two-day slide in a month. There it is. Dow's down by nearly 300, pretty much lows of the day. S&P down, well, approaching 1% as well. NASDAQ a little worse than that. What's interesting is that interest rates aren't rocketing higher. Uh, but yet the Nasdaq is under significant pressure. Josh, there's so much positive it, it feels like going on, and yet the amount of caution appears to be growing by the day. Do you match that, or how do you see it? I think you're exactly right, but I think what's so great about this environment is that it's obvious we needed a correction in certain areas of the market, and that's exactly where it's happening. The average IPO uh, for the month of April is actually down 10%. That's like, that's what should have happened. Things got way too easy. We talked about this last week. 97% of the S&P 500 was above its 200-day moving average last week. It's unsustainable. You can't have every stock going up every day with no pullbacks. The S&P was up 11% year-to-date on Friday. Russell 2000 up 13%. We should have a pullback. But what's so great about this, McDonald's is at an all-time high. Target's at an all-time high. Costco is ripping higher. Walmart is breaking out. You have a little bit of a pause in the reopening stocks. So they take some momentum out of the XHB names, the home builders. They take some momentum out of the airlines and the cruise names. That's fine. These stocks are up huge. And then over in Techland, they're hitting the Twitters, the snaps. That doesn't matter. These are medium-sized companies. They don't really matter. So I think if you're going to have a correction and you're going to have it focused in the most overvalued, overheated areas like IPOs, like mid-cap tech, no problem. Bring it on. I hope they, I hope they take it even further. Okay. But, Tiffany, the real question then becomes whether the correction that Josh is talking about rolling in some areas like IPOs and SPACs and some other areas of the market as well, if it broadens out. Right. And you you already have something like 90 percent of stocks above their 50 day moving average. People saying, oh, the market's so overbought. Is there the risk that the pullback that Josh is noticing in other parts of the market becomes more widespread? Yeah, so I think overall, Scott, I'm really bullish on on the outlook. And so I, I definitely understand what Josh is saying, but I'm thinking about data, you know, data, March data that was released last week uh, and really three things in particular, you know, why I really think that this uh, that this overall recovery that we're in uh, does have staying power. So I'm thinking about increased earnings. We had a, a, a amazing uh, 
blowout from from banks last week. And I think that we're going to see that across the board uh, this week and and throughout the rest of the earnings season. Increased inflation, which is really, you know, the, the CPI was released, really growth, right? And so while there's some uh, potential issues with that down the line, I do think that this is that's a sign of growth for us. And then also increased demand in the way of consumer um, spending. And so when you look at what, you know, the retail numbers were, were released for March were released last week. So they're up almost 10% from February, right? So that's the second fastest monthly increase in 30 years. And so people are buying big ticket items, right? So cars, car sales are up 15%. Um, you know, restaurants, even though that's not included with, with the, uh, the retail sales, you know, restaurant and bar, and bar uh, sales up 15%. And while a big driver of the spending was the $1,400 the stimulus checks, you know, I'm looking at the personal savings rate, the fact that that's double what it was pre-pandemic. Household net worth is at all-time highs. And I think that that you know, consumer spending and the fact that they have the money to spend is going to really um, kind of push us uh, and, and continue this, this, the, the expansion of this growth. Yeah. I mean, Doc, just because you have a booming economy and we're going to do a massive GDP number and we may do another massive one after that and after that and after that and we're going to add maybe a million jobs a month for as far as the eye can see at this point because we need to get back all the jobs that we lost during the pandemic that does not mean though that stocks can just continue to go straight up like a rocket ship right right and uh, you started to see uh, it, it wasn't just the small caps but many of the stocks I'm about to name Scott would fit into that category. Um, but you saw the reopening plays, the uh, airlines that are that were expecting to be able to travel to Europe and get those higher ticket flights rather than just leisure flights in the United States and so forth. Carnival Cruise Lines, American Airlines, United Airlines, Sabre, PK Hotels, the whole lot of them. Um, you're seeing those chinks in the armor a week and 10 days ago as those stocks started rolling over. Now, that has accelerated in the last week. So those stocks in particular, Scott, are down somewhere between 10 and 20% in a week. I mean, that's a pretty massive move. And it is because as much as we're optimistic, and Tiffany and Josh made a good case for that, as did you, um, I think the issues are also, are we going to get that synchronized global recovery. We know it's not synchronized yet. Now, does it get synchronized into the next two or three months as those vaccinations pick up speed in Europe and maybe uh, things come down from our travel department uh, as far as, you know, hey, yeah, it's safe to go and you're not going to need a vaccine passport and blah, blah, blah. If that starts happening, Scott, then yeah, these stocks will hit a bottom And to Josh's point, for all the people who've been waiting, now's your time. Jump in there and grab them. On the other hand, catching that falling knife is never easy. And when you're seeing those guys rolling over, then the next question is, well, are there other areas that might sort of not feel as robust about how it's going to be over the next quarter? Now, a year from now, fine. But not many of us Um, are able to have the fortitude to hold through a significant drop and then say, oh, yeah, but a year from now, it'll be fine. Yeah. So, you know, Stephanie Link, it it definitely feels like investors are getting their rain suits on. Right. I mean, Bank of America is -hmm. talking today about the shifting sentiment. They've seen the biggest outflows 
in five months. They've got the biggest amount of sales since mid-November, the fifth largest on record. What are we supposed to make of that? I mean, I keep thinking, you know, the, the environment looks so good, and yet the stock market can still be at the same time so incredibly overbought. Yeah, well, we're up 84% from the March lows of last year. We're up 10% this year alone. People forget 10% in a year is a really good return uh, on your money, right? So we've had a really great start. But at the end of the day, we talk about what is driving all of this economic activity and what drove the markets higher. It was liquidity, monetary and fiscal policy liquidity. We still haven't even spent $3 trillion, and we're about to get another $2 trillion, or maybe a little less, on, on infrastructure. And then there's another one behind that. So there's so much enormous liquidity in the system, and it's not going away. We are going to have to deal with that at some point, but we're not dealing with it right now, especially if you listen to the Fed and what they want to do on monetary policy. They're not changing yeah. anytime hey, soon. Hey, Steph, do me a favor. And, you know, so, Forgive me. Forgive me for interrupting yeah. you, Steph. I'll come right back to you. Meg Terrell's got a news alert for us on J&J. Meg? Hey, Scott, Johnson & Johnson saying it's going to resume shipments to Europe of its COVID-19 vaccine, this following the decision just now from Europe's health regulator, uh, saying essentially that there is a very rare risk of these blood clots with the J&J COVID-19 vaccine, but that the risk-benefit profile is still positive for the vaccine, and they are recommending uh, it continue to be used with a warning, including in the product uh, packaging. And so Johnson & Johnson says it's going to update the product packaging uh, in that way the information about it and resume shipping to Europe, guys. And you're seeing uh, J&J stock now approaching up 3% following earnings this morning. We'll, of course, hear from the CDC's advisors on Friday of this week about what will happen here in the U.S. with the vaccine pause. Scott. All right. We appreciate that update. Meg, thank you. Steph, you just throw that into the mix, too, of, of just positive <laughs> overall vaccine news. And forgive me for interrupting you. Please uh, continue at where you were going on the market. No, that's that's fine. And I'm a J&J shareholder, so I'm pretty happy about the news. Um, not too surprising after Fauci's comments last weekend. Um, but anyhow, um, I would just simply say liquidity is really driving things. It's leading to better GDP. Tiffany mentioned a whole bunch of data. Um, I'm not going to recite it, but I will say this one number, which was just blew me away, was retail sales, the control group at 14.2 percent. That goes right into GDP. So back to your point, Scott, on we're going to have a, a great GDP number for, for the first quarter and the second quarter and for the full year. And this is going to lead to better earnings. We're already seeing very, very good earnings. And what's really astounding is the balance sheets and the free cash flow generation that we've heard so far. And it's early yet, but I'm really impressed across the board, across the gamut, uh, with that, with, uh, within a lot of different sectors, right? So I expect earnings to be good this year. I don't expect to see multiple um, expansion. In fact, we probably see some contraction. But at the same time, I am relieved that interest rates, the tenure, has backed down the yield 20 basis, 20 almost 25 basis points from its high. And that is because basically you didn't want to see the velocity of rates moving so high. So if we have a controlled a situation in the bond market, um, maybe we are a little overbought. People take some gains. But this is exactly the time when you want to do your homework during earnings season because you're hearing firsthand what's going on from the companies. And so you just pick your spots and you just have a little cash on hand so that you can add And during what I call silly season is earnings season. Well, so um, where you get a lot of looks and a lot of opportunities. The, the move in rates certainly ha has caught the eye of many in, in the fact that they're not moving much higher at all. Rick Reeder addressed that with us yesterday. He's growing a little cautious. He says, yes, yeah, stocks can still go up another 5 to 10 percent. 
between now and the end of the year. But here's what he told us yesterday about what he sees in the market right now. We can discuss this on the other side. Rick Reeder. You have an economy that is accelerating very quickly. Think about what happened last week. Retail sales were up almost 10 percent. Housing starts were up 19 percent. You've got an economy that is surging. You look at all the manufacturing surveys, non-manufacturing ISM hit a record. And then you've got the Federal Reserve that's still putting more liquidity into the system. So what happened last week? Rates dropped, equities rallied, commodities rallied, and, you, and then you saw the bank numbers that suggested, gosh, much bigger balance sheets because they're taking in so many deposits. It started to feel a little bit, a little bit overdone. Josh, this is the, you know, it's too much of a good thing idea. There's too much liquidity now in the system, and the Fed may do something sooner than people are, are ready for. What do you make of what Rick Reeder said? I mean, this is a guy at BlackRock con controls more than $2 trillion. So how he thinks about the market matters by the way that the capital that he oversees is deployed in various parts of the market. Well, I do think what's keeping us from having the globally synchronized uh, economic recovery that John referenced, uh, and, and that, quite frankly, is the counterbalance to faster growth here, right? I still think what, what's holding that back is, is Europe's actual economic recovery. If I were a consultant to J&J, &J, mm -hmm. I would tell them, if you want these people to start taking the, the, the vaccine, maybe serve mayo on the side. But either way, we've got to figure out a way to get Europe to reopen faster than it is. The U.K. is doing a good job, slightly less good than, than we are. Asia's done a phenomenal job. I don't understand what the story is there. But they are exporting that disinflation, which maybe is not so bad because that is keeping a lid on U.S. Treasury rates, right? So you had an uptick in sovereign bond yields around the world, but not anywhere near as substantial or as rapid as ours is. But I don't know that that's so bad. We don't need to be at 2.5% right now on the 10 years. So I actually would look at Europe's slower recovery and say maybe that on balance is, is a positive for everybody. Um, but I think more importantly than all of that stuff is that people need to pull back the chart. Whatever stock, whatever sector we're talking about, people need to not just look at what happened over the last week, oh my God, I'm changing my mind. You hear a lot of commentary about Apple because of you know the, the announcement today and well, and, and it's one of the most important stocks. But if you pull back the chart, this is a stock that is up 170% in the last two years, which is unbelievable for the largest market cap that exists. It's got a shareholder yield on a trailing 12-month basis of 4.5%, which is incredible when you think about where bond yields are right now. So that's the dividend plus the amount of stock that they've bought back, averaged out per share. Uh, and it's 8% off its high. So people looking at this situation and judging it based on the last week, the last two weeks, you're not an investor. You're a rodeo clown. Well, if you're an investor, you understand context. Stocks don't go up in a straight line. It's ludicrous to expect that. So if every time Apple ends up in a 5 or an 8% drawdown, we think the environment's changed, honestly, you're guaranteeing that you're going to churn your own account to death and never make any real it money. Is, it is so flat. So I counsel people to right? think longer term. It is flat over the last three and a half months. And, and look, your, your point's well taken. And it's worth having a conversation about a market that once was so over-dependent on Apple and the rest of the fangs. 
doesn't appear to be that dependent on those stocks anymore. It can't that's be because right. the market's been hitting new highs almost every day, and those stocks haven't done all that much, right? It's been a rotation into that's the more right. cyclically uh, focused stocks and, and reopen, et cetera. But now I'm wondering, you know, okay, so how much, Josh, does the market even need uh, on this day where we're going to have this Apple event begin in 45 minutes, a little bit less than that, 44 minutes or so, how much does the market even need Apple to get back to its, you know, pulling the, the, the whole thing along mode? We, look, we looked back, we looked back, not recently, but probably last year, we looked at days where Apple had a really, like a, a, a minus 3% day, and there aren't that many of them, but we looked at the whole sample size. What happened to the S&P 500? I promise you, you could take my word for it, I promise you, there's absolutely nothing there. There's no signal. It, it, it literally has no impact. And you would think, well, it should, isn't it? 6% of the NASDAQ and 4% of the, no, it doesn't. It really doesn't matter. So um, I, I'm not saying let's, nobody should care about Apple. I'm just saying if that's your timing signal, like is Apple red, you're going to lose. Yeah, but there was a time, John, where, you know, we had such a highly concentrated market, which we used to say, hey, this is a negative for the market overall. Look how few number of stocks are pulling all the weight for the rest of the market. Now you have, Doc, a much more mm -hmm. broadened rally. You've got, you know, I don't know what the number was, like 95 percent of stocks at their 200-day moving average or 90 percent above their 50-day moving average, which certainly points to the broadening of the rally now we're wondering okay what real need is there for the big fang stocks to pull everything along it's actually better if they don't well um since it's my biggest holding scott i'm i'm not gonna agree that uh <laughs> that, that i'm gonna hope that it doesn't i'm gonna hope that it does get back into the leadership position and i think it will the fact that you described that you know more or less meandering for three months you're right about that, and I think that can be at times like a coiled spring. Um, I think demand for their products is still quite high, and when they you know, have this event today, they'll be questioned, of course, about the App Store and uh, the cloud usage and so forth, in particular because uh, the likely introduction of the products they're going to introduce isn't going to be a wow moment. Um, it's likely to be incremental improvement that people see and that people want, but are they willing to upgrade a whole bunch of Macs or iPads or whatever uh, because of it? I don't think so. But again, those other drivers, Scott, are the significant drivers throughout the summer, you know, spring and summer into the fall with the introduction of yet another iPhone, um, even though that one is likely to just be a slight uh, improvement as well. And yet, People are going to love it. You just heard uh, John Fort talking about he loves that home key. Um, is that going to be available yeah. on the next product or whatever? It might be, Scott. But anyway, the stock is a juggernaut. I love it. I think it's going to have a great performance today. And it'll be a lot about uh, those ancillary businesses, not as much about the actual products. All right. let, hey, let, hey, Judge. Yeah, yeah I, quick. I, I just real quick. I think John, I think John is right. The two most important issues facing Apple shareholders have nothing to do with new hardware they're releasing today. It's the battle versus Facebook, the battle versus Fortnite, whether or not they'll be able to preserve the take rate they have in that app store, because the app store is the single biggest driver of sentiment from Wall Street. 
toward whether or not they want to own Apple, Apple's margins, Apple's growth. It's all about the app store, the take rate. Those are the, the, the battles that investors should focus on, mm-hmm. not is there a new iPad coming out. Under, understood. Um, look, ser- services yeah. too. Services too, right? Uh, that was the whole uh, you know, mm-hmm. reason why Katie Huberty dropped her price target. Uh, a little bit lately is because Scott. margins compressing from some of the competitors in the services area and her expectations that that may happen with Apple as well, even as the business keeps, you know, hum- humming right along. Quick stuff. I want to bring in a guest. Go ahead. I think we forget that in the past year, Apple was up 95%, right? So it's only up 1.4% this year, but up 95% in anticipation of the iPhone cycle, in anticipation of work from home beneficiaries on the Mac and on iPads. And now you, what you have is the next couple of months, maybe two quarters or so, you don't have any catalysts and that's okay. The stock can kind of sit here for a while, but it is still a very attractive long-term story. But I just wanted to put that in context of this stock has done a nice job in terms of performance over the last year. Yeah. Well, you're going to get earnings coming up, I, th- I think, next week, right? The middle of next week. So you're going to, yeah. you know, you hear from the company, you find out exactly what's going on. It all plays into the broader conversation about where the market is going from here. Our headliner today says, well, we're due for a pullback. No kidding. Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist, Can't Accord Genuity. Good to see you. You dropped your, your sort of outlook for the market last week, er- early last week, and it was modestly so. You, you are looking for a correction. Is this it? I mean, is this the beginning of it? How big is it going to be? What's the deal? We're, um, you know, Joe, Joe, typically if I think it's going to be a, a, a very tame pullback, I'll just say I'm expecting a pullback. But we actually lowered our tactical rating on the market to neutral, thinking it'll be about 10 percent. It'll be probably over the next couple of months where you, you could go down and stair step lower, similar to what you did in 2004, have a correction like you did in 2010. This isn't any different. You've had a massive move off the low, an extreme overbought tactical condition. The fundamentals are, are very sound. We call it a, a power on stall. And the, the way that it's a visual, we're all visual. So think about an air show where you have a plane going across the, the runway, screaming across the horizon, power's on, engines ripping, and it pulls up and it starts going all the way straight up. And eventually, no matter how much power is being used, the plane stalls and starts to rotate back down. And of course, they get the airspeed up and it's fine. In other words, there's a point in the market similar to interest rates from six weeks ago on the 10 year. There's a point where even if you have all the power, you're going to stall anyway. And we're in, I think, embarking upon that. stall. So, so you're, you're telling me because I want to try and get my arms around this. And I think our viewers do as well. OK, sure. as I said, we're going to print incredible numbers on GDP. The retail sales numbers were already amazing. They're going to continue by all likelihood to be that way. We're going to continue on that first Friday of a new month to see an amazing jobs number and in continuing that road back to getting the jobs back that we lost due to the pandemic. And you're telling me, and by the way, and the Fed's already told you, don't don't worry about us because we're not doing anything. Even if inflation runs a little hot, we're not doing anything. Reader says, well, there's too much liquidity in the system. Fed says right now we don't care. We're not doing anything. You're telling me under that entire backdrop that stocks you just said over the next few months are going to have up to a 10 percent correction in the face of all of that good news. Why? Because you've you've run out of airspeed. Think of the plane analogy I just used. Think of the 10-year, Scott, when when I downgraded the financials, and you guys did an awesome job of covering that. That was about uh, five, six weeks ago. And the reason was, the, fr- the opening line was, this isn't that complicated. 
You had gotten too extreme on your rate of change of the 10-year note yield. It went straight up. How could you have the 10-year note yield go from a 177 to a 155 today with 900,000 plus jobs, a new high in the ISM services reading, a 38-year high on the ISM manufacturing reading, all the OECD data going bananas to the upside? How could you have a 20 basis point drop in the 10-year? Because the market... Because the market, words, believes, the, the market believes drop. that the Fed's not going to do anything. The, the Fed was trying to call. The, the market was trying to call. Scott? Sorry, the Six market. Six weeks ago, people were arguing. Like you're arguing with me. People were arguing that the 10-year had to go to 2% right away because inflation expectations were ramping on increased economic data. I am absolutely bullish into the end of the year. But you have run, you're running out of lift in that airplane analogy. There's a point where no matter how much power you have, you're going to have a stall. Now, it's not the end of the world stall. As Steph pointed out totally accurately, there is a historic amount of excess liquidity. I wanted to take profits because now everybody's getting defensive that they're seeing some weakness. I want to attack the weakness because of the excess liquidity, because of John's synchronized global recovery, and in the areas that Josh is talking about. That's the, that's the game here, is not to chase the stalling plane. It's to start to stabilize it when it's coming down. That's when you buy. The move in, in rates of a few weeks ago, you could easily say that was the market telling the Fed, no, we don't believe you, that you can say you're as dovish as you want till you're blue in the face, and we don't believe you. So Jay Powell and all these others had to come out and say, you know, the equivalent of we're not even thinking, 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 thinking about, thinking about. So rates started to move back lower, even though all of the news has been incredibly great. So maybe you're putting too much in the reason why the, the, the rates went up to begin with. I literally put in one of the opening lines of a paragraph of that note, which is on, is on our website, you can, I literally put on there, the guy keeps looking into the camera like I'm doing right now, telling you the game plan, and the market and people like me come on TV and try to suggest he's lying. The dude hasn't lied yet. So, so I believed him then. I believe him now. Okay. And again, the data is the data. Remember, Scott, we had done that not because the data was going to change and it was going to get negative. It was because the 10-week uh, rate of change on the 10-year note yield had hit a level it's never seen before and, and pivoted lower from that kind of level. When it's done that in the past, you've seen a pullback in the 10-year note yield. Look, That's I, what it was about. I don't know where the market's going, and you know, I don't get – you know, I'm not managing other people's money and I don't get paid to know where the market um, is going. But just because you say, well, we're overbought or, oh, it's too much froth or, oh, it's too much exuberance. That doesn't mean that the market's going to go down. Maybe the fundamentals are so strong underneath the market at this particular time, even though it's run a lot, that yep. that's enough to keep the market from having the 10 percent correction that, that you're looking for. Buddy, we've been doing this a long time, and the viewers, I think, know that I don't show up with an opinion. When I say I think, fade me. When I say the data is suggesting, I'd say, listen, the data, it's not, the VIX is never, is rarely this oversold, meaning it's come down so hard on a 14-week on a stochastic and now pivoted higher. The 10-week rate of change, like I said, on the 10-year note yield peaked and started turning lower. Uh, is the, as Josh said, 90 6% of the S&P 500 was above the 200-day moving average. I'm not making it up. I'm looking at the data. I don't I care you. what my mind says. I, I look what the data says. The thing I do get paid for is to, to <laughs> take the other side. 
Yeah, it's winding people up. <laughs> You're awesome. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do um, all the time. I mean, I, I like the back and forth. I think our viewers need to hear both sides of the story, even though the, all the signs may suggest, yes, we're, we're overbought and we are, quote unquote, the oldest saying in the book, we're due for a correction. Doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get one in the near term. Well, Scott, corrections know. are only natural, normal and healthy until you're actually in one. Yeah. And then what happens is people like me come on TV and shows and say, wow, you could get a pullback. I, of course, you're going to get a pullback. I would rather take profits in the market last week when it's still not stalled yet. Right now it's stalled. Now questions okay. come in. Well, I want your viewers and my, our clients to have the opportunity to take advantage of moves versus inappropriately react to them. And God knows, <laughs> the viewers know, I'm not always right. But in this situation, I think when you follow, consistently follow the data, it gives you signals of when to be more aggressive or less aggressive, even in a very, very positive fundamental macro backdrop. Understood. I love the back and forth. I appreciate you coming on. We'll see you again soon. Tony Dwyer, thank you very much. Anytime, buddy. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll talk about the moves our committee is making up next. Netflix earnings after the bell. We'll get you ready for that, too. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. All right, let's talk Netflix reporting earnings after the bell. Tiffany McGee bought more into the number. Tell us I why. I did. Tell us why. I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we love Netflix. Um, you know, Netflix's revenue and their success is directly related to their original content. And they've been able to kind of figure out this um, formula that when they do original content and bring it in-house, it brings down the cost. And so I think that that is one of their competitive advantages. Yes, we can talk about Disney Plus all day long. That is really kind of uh, gaining some market share. Netflix is still the leader uh, and we own both. Yeah. What about the idea, though, of literally what Tony Dwyer and I were just talking about, right? People are going to leave their houses. What about churn, maybe? Got to worry about the fact that we're not going to be sitting around watching Netflix all day and all night. I mean, weren't you watching Netflix before the pandemic, Scott? A Netflix and chill night? Yeah, Isn't but that now, always appropriate? But, but, yeah, but now I want to get back to, like, I want to do, I want to get out more than I ever did before the, in my entire life. And so does everybody else, I, I suspect. Yeah, the, Right, but are you going to cancel your, your Netflix your Netflix subscription? No, no. I'm not. But how many and how many again, new subscriptions the are they driver- going to get? Right, that's the question. You got to continue to grow the subs no, no. to continue to grow the stock, don't you? No, no, I totally no. understand that. But the driver of Netflix is original content. And while clearly there was a bump during the pandemic, I don't think that that's going to go away. At the end of the day, I'm still going to want to watch, like me and a lot of other people, are still going to want to have a time where we're going to want to sit down and watch a movie. And really, it's Netflix. I'm not turning on TV, live TV, right? Um, Hulu gives me something different. Yes, Disney Plus is an option. But in most cases, it's not an either or option. It's you want both. And so while we're coming out of this uh, this this pandemic, you know, uh, stay at home situation, 
I do still think that people are going to watch Netflix and that it's going to continue to grow, especially outside of the, of, uh, the U.S. as well. Dr. J, you, you've got Netflix calls. How, how do mm -hmm. you see this? Because I, I feel like this is, you know, it, it really is that debate that T Tiffany and I were having right now. Of course, right? People mm -hmm. love Netflix. Their sub numbers continue to be great. But yeah, this is a different world we're about to enter into, isn't it? Well, uh, Scott, the, the issue is always the churn. Uh, in other words, how many new subscribers come in versus those that are leaving? And uh, I am not as focused on uh, the new ads as I am on holding the old for this reason, Scott. Uh, the price increase that they just put through um, can mitigate a lot of that churn. So. If indeed they experience uh, a lot of folks just saying, nope, don't need it, cut it. Uh, if that accelerates in this quarter, that's going to be a big negative for them. On the other hand, if the churn rate is about where the analysts expect it to be right now, um, then I think people buy this just like Tiffany did after the report tonight, because I think people are going to be saying, well, they're getting so much more per subscription, there's still at least another lever they could pull, which is cutting back on the number of people that can share the same login information and so forth. Other services have done that, Scott. Obviously, Xfinity, parent company of this network, has done that. When you try to log in, it, they have to send you a code to your phone. So if you're going to start passing all those codes around, uh, you know that cuts down on the amount of folks that can share a login. So I think Netflix has that other lever to pull, and I think that the price increase is going to be something that helps them lift the stock, especially after the little correction that we've seen in there. I mean, the stock, you know, quickly, Tiffany, I'll let you wrap it up since that's where we started. It's not like, you know, it's been a runaway barn burner. Um, nothing relative to the other quote unquote stay at home names. It's only up 25% over a year, it's done nothing year to date. And it's down 6% over the last three months. Does that bode well? I'm trying to figure out what kind of statement does that stock performance make? Yeah, I mean, didn't Stephanie just talk about earlier uh, um, a 10% increase in the market? I, I think that we've gotten to this world where um, numbers like 23% aren't, aren't impressive. So we're... I'm definitely good with that. Um, still, I really do think the, the competitive advantage, the moat of Netflix, is their original content. They've been able to bring that cost down by bringing it in-house. And you can only go to Netflix to get Netflix original content. I, I think that it's still a strong story. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's get to uh, Rahel Solomon. She has the headlines for us. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Scott. Let's begin in Minneapolis, where the city is preparing for potential unrest as jurors in the trial of Derek Chauvin enter their first full day of deliberations over the killing of George Floyd. Moments ago, President Biden answered a question about the trial. They're a good family, and they're called for peace and tranquility, no matter what that verdict is. I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict, which is overwhelming in my view. I wouldn't say that unless the, the jury was sequestered now. Not hear me say that. A new study estimates that more than 50 million Americans live with chronic pain. Researchers polled nearly 32,000 adults across the country and back, hip, knee and foot ailments were the most common sources of pain. The study calculates the total value of lost productivity due to chronic pain, nearly $300 billion a year. 
And the price of flying in the U.S. last year fell to its lowest level in over two and a half decades if prices are adjusted for inflation. The average ticket in 2020 cost $292. That's down 19% from the previous year. But Scott, as our Phil LeBeau has been telling us, this year prices are on the rise. Yeah. So I'll send it back to you. No surprise whatsoever by the data that you just had there. Rahel, thank you. Yep. Rahel Solomon. All right, Doc's got his latest trades for Unusual coming up. We'll do it next. Plus, April is Financial Literacy Month. As you know, we here at CNBC committed to sharing messages from business leaders about the importance of financial education. Here is NYSE President Stacey Cunningham. The American dream is not only about being able to start a business and earn a living, it's about sharing that success too. It's a story of shared success. And every day here, we see companies coming in, changing the world and allowing investors to dream alongside them. Financial literacy is such an important part of that. So investors know how to take advantage of the opportunities that are out there for them. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. John Nigerian, unusual activity. What do you have for us? Well, Scott, uh, we've got QSR today. QSR with the stock at uh, just under $66 a share. They're buying the May 67.50 calls in big numbers. So they're about $1.50 out of the money. You can, uh, at least what I did was bought the at the money and I'll be selling upsides on this move. I like the action here. I'll probably hold it close to a month, Scott. Second one, um, how about NNDN? It's kind of a rare one because they bought an in-the-money call. They bought the $7.50 call with the stock at about $7.70. They bought 16,000 of those. So that's a big purchase, 1.6 million share equivalent. That was enough to get my interest. I bought those, Scott, and I'll try to load in another call above the market against them as it rallies. Uh, but I will be in this one about a month as well, Scott. Okay, appreciate that. Dr. J, thank you very much. It is, as you know, a down day for stocks. However, IBM is rallying on its earnings, so is that a buy signal? Somebody who owns it will tell you next. IBM, it is the big Dow winner today, helped by earnings up nearly 5%. Stephanie Link, tell us what you think of this, okay? Jim Cramer says this is the beginning. It's the beginning of a new IBM, and we should recognize that. <laughs> well, he and I were emailing last night on that I'm, very I'm subject. Sh- I'm sure um, you were. Yeah, no, I mean, sure you were. 
<laughs> I was hoping that maybe he would, you know, give a little support here, and, and he definitely did. But I think he's spot on, quite frankly. And I, I bought this stock a couple of um, months ago, mainly because it's a new CEO. His focus is on growth, AI, cloud, data analytics, blockchain, those kinds of things. Um, and then they also bought Red Hat. And so this quarter, they returned to revenue growth. They, they had uh, 11 to 12 billion is what they're guiding for free cash flow, which is very impressive. And where was the beat? The beat was in cloud. Total cloud grew 8 18 percent, and that's versus 8 percent last quarter, and Red Hat was up 17 percent. So now you have a spin coming at the end of the year in their IT services business. You've got momentum on the cloud side. You are returning to revenue growth, and their balance sheet is actually really pretty good. They've actually paid down debt, 17 billion from the peak, 5 billion alone in this past quarter. So they mean business, and I think at the same time, you're at 13 times forward, and mm -hmm. you get about almost a 5 percent dividend yield while you wait for this turn to, to occur. So okay. I like it. Happy today. So you just said something interesting, which I like to, I mean, to everything you said was interesting. Forgive me. Um, I do <laughs> want to debate, though, one thing. You said they are, quote, they're returning to revenue growth. I mean, one quarter doesn't a return make, does it, Steph? I mean, the, revenue growth was so stagnant for, for so long, you almost forgot that they ever had revenue growth. So, yeah. you know, yeah. they got to put in some numbers <laughs> over a longer period of time to actually believe it's a trend, no? That's why it trades at 13 times earnings. That's why there's only three buys on the street, right, from the sell side. And that's why they bought Red Hat, so that they could actually see some growth. And it was proven this past quarter. Yeah, they have a, it's a show me story for sure. But I do think revenue growth has hurt them because of this IT services business. And now that they're going to spin that off, what do we usually say? Companies that spin off stuff or sell things, they're shrinking to grow. And that is exactly why I want to own this kind of company. It's, a, it's almost a special situation story on top of a restructuring story as well. I hear you. All right. Ask Halftime is coming up next. You can send your questions by video. We'll play them on the air if you do. You can email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back right after this. All right, let's do it. Let's answer your questions, Tiff. First up, a video question for you. Why has Pfizer stock remained flat throughout the entire pandemic when they're helping to save the world? And is Pfizer a buy, a sell, or a hold? Thank you very much. All right, that was David in West Virginia with a question that a lot of people probably have. Tiff, what's the answer? Yeah, so, you know, Pfizer got a, gov a government contract to produce a vaccine, and they did. So they're not making crazy money off the sale of this vaccine, as, as, as you know, you, you might think. Um, but Pfizer's been researching COVID-type vaccines for years, and COVID-19 really provided an opportunity for them to focus more on the research and to learn things uh, about these types of, of diseases that they can then use uh, for for. Um, for uh, future diseases. So I'm excited about the opportunity in terms of the research that they've learned and the data. Uh, so for me, I'm continuing to hold it. Um, and so I would suggest you look for opportunities to buy. Okay, thank you. And for that. now might be a good one. Oh, sorry about that. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. J, video question for you too. Mm -hmm. Hey, Dr. J, Steve from Virginia here. And I was wondering what your thoughts on Ethereum was um, given all the interest in crypto, Bitcoin and NFTs now. Thank you. Uh, it's a good question, right? A lot of interest and a lot of volatility as we learned this past weekend, and we're you know, starting to get our arms around more. Doc, what, what, do you, what do you tell them? Yeah. Well, and this weekend, Scott, that was all about leverage, really. Um, people that were over-leveraged on Deribit and uh, some of the other exchanges got flushed out. But to Ethereum, I'd say, or Ether, 
Um, I think this with the smart contracts is a beautiful play for the crypto space. It's the second largest, and I think it's the most useful crypto out there, Scott. So that'd be my answer for Steven. All right, we'll round it out with a video question for you, Josh. My name's Paul. Thank you for taking my question. Question is on Bank of America and Morgan Stanley. How do you look at the difference in the P.E. ratios and what um, where they should be? Thank you. Josh Brown, do you have the answer? I do. It's a great question. Uh, I don't think P.E. ratio is particularly useful um, because when you think about financials, they are more likely to be valued by analysts and prospective investors on price to book. So what we're concerned with with financials is what is the book value of the company? What is the historic price to book that it typically sells at? If it's selling at a substantial discount, why? What's the reason? What's wrong? Is it fixable? And if it's selling at a substantial premium, either relative to its own history or its group, why? What are they doing right that the other financials aren't? So these P.E. ratios are all over the map. Price book is a little bit more reliable. Not a great timing signal, though. And be prepared to see huge disparities. Uh, J.P. Morgan trades 1.8 times book. Bank of America is 1.3. That disparity typically reflects people's opinion of the quality of the business. And you're either the type of investor looking for something cheap that's not as good or expensive that's much better. And that's really going to be subjective uh, based on your own predilections as an investor. So that's how I would think about that. All right. Good stuff. Thank you. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right, Steph, what do you have for final trades for us today? Uh, Dover, they reported a great number, 30% earnings growth, core growth on revenues of 9% and operating margin expansion by 260. I think industrials are going to have a great quarter on long overweight the sector. Okay. Tiffany? It's all about luxury nesting. Love sack. I actually just bought some. Uh, they sell $1,500 beanbags, Scott. Um, wow. And the stock is up, uh, yeah, $1,500. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, is overwhelming. Uh, and now they sell, they sell sectionals as well. Overwhelming, um, you know, uh, analysts uh, buy ratings. Uh, it, really talking about the fact that the company is this up-and-coming company, but it's been yep. around for 23 okay. years. Stock is up 832%. Wow. All right. Josh, give me a quick name. Uh, watching Zillow, no purchase yet, but soon. Doc, quick, quick, quick. Spider puts, SPY puts, Scott. Okay, thank you, guys. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself.
Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.